Okay, friends. I just need to uh, inform you that if you see me limping on this stage this morning, it's not because I'm trying to have some kind of Christmas swagger. I think I'm that cool. I'm actually limping from a bit of a knee injury. Uh, but I need to tell you for a moment how that happened because last Sunday I gave a very impassioned plea about getting to know your neighbor. And you have to use words you have to share. Who remembers that? Who was, who was moved by that? Who wanted to love your neighbors because? of my words to you this Christmas season. Three, uh, th yeah, one person. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, I need to tell you that I'm limping because my neighbor that I'm trying to love so desperately and dearly, um, his dog bit my knee yesterday. And, um, and this is no normal dog. He is a half-wolf dog. <laughs> I am not kidding. So if I start foaming at the mouth with rabies and I'm limping, it's because I got bit in the knee by a wolf yesterday, but I'm here alive. So I think I also, I think that also proves that I was saying about, you know, thank you, my, my love of Conan the Barbarian and the flesh is strong. So, I, you know, I get to now say I survived a wolf attack. So there you go. Um, no, I'm fine. I talked with my neighbor. It's a little sore, but he did get me pretty good. Anyways, whoo, that said, that's why I'm limping a bit. Um, Christmas is now upon us. And what we have done is we've taken a step back from the Christmas story. And here's what I mean by that. Normally when it hits Christmas, we jump into the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. And well, we should because together they tell us the Christmas story. Matthew comes at it as we would expect. The first book of the New Testament kind of picks up from the old and shows in a very Jewish way how this is the fulfillment of the promise of the coming Messiah. We actually get a lot from Joseph's perspective uh, and, and the family lineage, how, again, Jesus is fulfilling promises from the, uh, the root of Jesse, from uh, the, the throne of David, uh, the tribe of Judah, all that stuff kind of ties into this Joseph story, not exclusively from Joseph's perspective, but it really gives us insight to that angle. Then we pick up in Luke, where we get the fullness of this angel visits and, and the importance of the women uh, and their part in the story, and it's a quite beautiful. Well, John writes sometime after. We won't get into the dates of when and how, but, you know, sort of in his lifetime, and John was the beloved disciple who was called by Jesus, walked with Jesus, did ministry with Jesus, but sometime after that, then toward the close of his life, he is thinking, uh, obviously, like, I would need to get some of this stuff in writing, but he tells us really about the meaning of Christmas. He doesn't go into so much the story of Christmas. He knows that that's been preserved, written, is being handed down. He jumps into the meaning of Christmas, and he beautifully boils it down to this. And you can memorize this. You can then share about this. Uh, you can talk to people over coffee about this because he boils it down so beautifully. I hope you remember. Please remember now with me. What does Christmas, what is the meaning of Christmas for John? It is that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We can all remember that, right? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we said that really encapsulates Christmas. That the word, and we talked about the word is the revelation, the full revelation in this intimate revelation of God to us. Uh, God became flesh, incarnate, 
one of us, in the, and we talked about the paradoxical nature of the strength and the vulnerability of the flesh, the strength, the resolve, the will it would take for God to become incarnate, and yet how that was the invitation and the acceptance of vulnerability, and the vulnerability would ultimately end on a cross and his death for our salvation, his resurrection, for our new life. Um, and then we talked about how he did this so that he could dwell with us. It was God's desire, just pause on that just long enough, it was God's desire to dwell, to be with, in relationship with us, with me, with you. And that's why we closed the message, and where I'll pick up now this morning, and they'll stand alone, but if you want it, you can get all the details of that. It's all online now. But we close with this. What does this mean? What does this ultimately mean? And we celebrated the fact that Christmas ultimately means the end of religion, the end of everything that was pointing towards the fulfillment, and it's the beginning of relationship. The gospel, the good news, the life that we have in Jesus Christ. Christmas means the end of religion, the beginning of this relationship that we now have with God through Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit in our lives. And so I want to go deeper into that with you this morning, and I want to do that by going deeper into John. John not only wrote a gospel, a story of Jesus, he wrote letters to the believers, to the Christians and we pick up the story how he starts in his first letter. So let me just read this. This isn't going to, let me just say this. So, you know, don't like just check out, you know, he's going to explain it in a moment. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to explain it. But I'm going to read this. It's not going to sound Christmassy at all, but it is. It's very Christmassy because, again, Christmas is the end of religion, the beginning of our relationship with God. And so he is launching again to what he wants to tell the church, he wants to tell us, and he's going to be sort of pinging off of these promises fulfilled that we have in Christmas. So, John, the, so this is now the Gospel of John. It's 1 John chapter 1. Just going to read the first couple verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. Wow, okay, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling. John is reflecting on all of that stuff now. This we proclaim concerning the Word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that which we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard, and from, heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. One of the reasons Christmas is when it is is not because we know for a fact that Jesus was born December 25th. Chances are it wasn't around this time of year, but we wanted to mark an occasion and a time to remember and celebrate the miracle of incarnation. And there's some reasons for that. One of the factors in that is clearly that this, as you may not know, you'll, you'll now know, is the shortest day of the year the darkest day of the year in the northern hemisphere. And light being such a central theme to John and to the Gospels and to the story of Jesus, this light that breaks forth through the darkness is one of the reasons we celebrate 
Christmas and the light of Christmas and why, you know, it, we, we just had to really play into the light of the star, you know, just calling to us, guiding us, directing us, filling us with joy and hope and peace and, and faith. Anyway, so, so we're going to break this down now on what John is telling us in this season of light that we now have because Christ has appeared to us. And it's going to go like this. Let me just put it down into four parts for you. Uh, the first is that because um, Christmas marks the end of religion, the beginning of a relationship, we're going to just say, and I'll just kind of make it, try and make it memorable here for us, that salvation is a gift. The life that we have, this salvation comes to us as a gift from God. Second, we now know that fellowship is possible. Fellowship is possible because we have salvation in Jesus Christ. Because we have salvation, because we have fellowship, we have joy. Joy is available, and because joy is available, we know that love wins. So salvation is a gift. Again, these are reflections on the meaning of Christmas. We'll get into the story next week. Salvation is a gift. Fellowship is possible. Joy is available, and love we know ultimately wins. Salvation is a gift. Over and over again, we know that salvation is coming as the gift of Christmas. Whenever the angel appears to Mary, she is terrified, sore afraid, and well she should be, standing in the glory of one of the messengers of God. She, he assures her, tells her she is favored, tells her she is blessed, and in the course of that narrative, he says, you are going to give birth to a son who will be the son of God, and you will give him the name Jesus, because he will, if you remember it, you can recall it now, he will save his people from their sins. Whenever Joseph finds Mary to be pregnant, and we know in that part of the story, he's freaking out as well he should be. He sets in course in his mind that he may divorce her quietly because he doesn't want to put her to shame because he already loves her. And we can fully understand and sympathize with this until an angel then appears to him in a dream. And he reiterates, and you will give him the name, not Joseph, not Jesse, not any of these other names in the family lineage. You will give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will again. What does Jesus mean? He will save his people from their sins. We know that salvation, the gift of salvation is coming to us at Christmas. And Jesus encapsulates this. It is even the core of his meaning. It is his name, Jesus the Lord saves. He will come and bring salvation as a gift. Now, this is very important to remark that this is how our faith in Jesus Christ and our relationship begins. Other faiths, other belief systems, other religions, and we'll just call them religions. We're not going to break them all down one by one. But time and again, over the course of human history, study this, Google it, you know, read about it yourselves. Time and again, most religions start when a man and it is most usually a man, goes off and has a vision, a mystical experience, they get the insight, and then that man comes back and tells everybody what they have to do to be saved. You have to do these things that now I'm going to tell you that you have to do if you want to be right with God. Trust me, listen to me, I know you weren't there, you didn't see it, you didn't remember what John just said, you didn't hear it, you didn't touch it. You didn't experience it. Trust me. Do what I say, and things will go well for you. Oh, how different our Christmas story. When God doesn't wait, you know, for us to be able to reach up to him, but God comes down to us. 
God sends a messenger, and not to, and you just have to love this part of the story, not to a man, but to a young girl, a teenage girl. To be perfectly honest, before this we would say a nobody, a nothing, insignificant, no influence, no power, no clout, nothing. He comes to this young girl and says, you who are highly favored, through you will come the gift of the Savior, and the gift ultimately of salvation. In other faiths, men go away and get the revelation and come and tell us what we do to have to be saved. Christmas tells us that God came to us to offer us now the gift of salvation. Amen? This is so fundamentally different, mind-blowing, reality-altering, friends. And don't miss the significance that the gift of Christmas is salvation. In just a few verses, John is going to go back into this play on light and darkness and the gift of salvation. In John chapter 3, one of the most famous narratives in his gospel, um, he gets into uh, this story that Nicodemus. And uh, I mean, if I, if I have two hours, we'd go through the whole thing, but Nicodemus comes at night. Again, just see John and these Gospels always playing with light and dark, day and night. Nicodemus comes at night. Anyways, a light is about to, you know, sort of illuminate him and his mind and his thinking and his soul. In the course of that narrative, though, what, is, what does God, what, what does Jesus say to him? He says, for God so loved the world that he gave. That he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God loves, so God gives. See, love is always giving, and the greatest gift that we could be given is the gift of that which we need most, and it is salvation. It is life itself in Jesus, and Jesus gives this to us. Who here is a great gift giver? Go ahead and raise your hand if you're a great gift giver. I, my wife, hand up high. So I would recommend for you, especially if you're married, if you are a parent, you should probably learn about at some point the five love languages. Anybody know the five love languages? Okay, good. You know, the three of you, good. You're blessed. All right. Um, the five love languages. Gary Chapman does a great job just saying this is how we express and receive love. Because love is elusive. Love is intangible. Love is feelings. Love is, love is all this stuff. So he says we're going to express and receive love in a couple different ways. So he talks about words. We share words of affirmation. Uh, he talks about acts of service. We do kind things for, for one another. Uh, we talk, he talks about quality time. We just need to be together. You can't just say quantity over quality. You need time together. Um, some people, uh, it's physical touch. We need intimacy and we need touch. We're, we're incarnate dwelling creatures. And for some it is gift giving, right? Gift giving is a key way we express and receive love. Now, sadly, in my marriage, gift giving may be Robin's top love language of both giving and receiving, and it is clearly my bottom love language. I am the worst, I am the worst gift giver in the world. I had one job to do this year. I had one job to do this Christmas. George, you need to get your brother and your parents a gift for Christmas. Okay, Robin, I'm on it. I can do this. I can give them a gift. Weeks go by. Finally, I go to Robin last week, and I said, Robin, I decided what I'm going to give my brother and my parents this year for Christmas. She says, oh good, what did you decide? I decided I'm going to give them whatever you get them. And I literally ran out of the house, jumped in the car, and went to the gym and wouldn't look at her for the rest of the day. I was so ashamed. That is how bad I am at gift giving. <laughs> and yet even I, as poor as I am, 
at gift giving and receiving. I, I, I have been so touched and so changed and so moved, so blessed by gifts that I did not earn, that I did not deserve, that I had, I had no, no place saying, you know, I require this, I demand this, I have to have this. Yet gifts have touched and changed my life. Gifts have touched and changed all of your lives. Reflect on those. The greatest gift, the greatest gift is the gift that we have in salvation. Gift, uh, uh, sorry, salvation has to be a gift. Salvation has to come as a gift or else it is going to come to us as works. Salvation has to come to us as a gift or it will come to us as works. Two weeks ago, I reflected on John's statement where he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us we have seen his glory, the glory one of the one and only who came from the Father. He was full of grace and truth. Jesus, full of grace and truth. Now, we reflected on that just briefly during that message. We said that grace abused becomes license to do whatever we want, right? We can't abuse grace. We can have this approach to grace to say, well, salvation is a gift and grace comes and, and it comes to us by grace. And, and so I can do whatever I want and get forgiven. That is an abuse. That is a license that grace should not give us because truly when grace touches our lives, we are transformed. That transformation changes our attitude, our approach, the outworking of our faith. But truth abused becomes legalism right? And legalism always becomes a hammer to beat people. So, so the importance that salvation has to come to us as a gift is because the only alternative is that will become works. It will stay in the category of religion. And whenever we are working out our religion, whenever we're working for our salvation, we will always end up in one of two places, fear or pride, despair or pride. When we're trying to work at our salvation, we're going to set a standard, we're going to seek to measure up to it, and we won't. We will fall short of our standard, we will have duplicitous thoughts, uh, conflicting actions, uh, or a behavior that we know is not glorifying to God. Things will happen that will cause us despair because we'll say, I am not achieving the standard by which I am trying to live, and that will bring us shame, that will bring us guilt, and we will end up in despair when we are always trying to fulfill the work of our salvation. Or, or we'll think we do it, and then we'll be full of pride. I'm doing it. I'm righteous enough. I'm worshiping enough. I'm praying enough. I'm holier than thou art enough, and therefore I am full of pride, and I can look down on all these sinners around me seeking to achieve the grace that I have earned. It's not even grace anymore. So salvation has to come to us as a gift so that we're not filled with fear or pride, but we can full, be full of the grace and the truth that Jesus Christ offers to us. Okay, I had other points I'm going to make, so we're going to move on to, because salvation is a gift, fellowship is possible. True fellowship is possible. Now, let me say this about that. Just because fellowship is possible does not mean that fellowship is inevitable. Just because fellowship with God is possible does not mean that fellowship with God is inevitable. How many of us have gotten a gift, said that's great, 
and then forgotten within 24 hours what the gift was, where we put it, who gave it, that it ever existed in our life. We have all received a gift that in the moment we say, oh, this is wonderful, and then it is gone. <laughs> Sadly, many of us may experience that. We may have this uh, euphoric experience of salvation, of transformation, uh, this feeling of peace, this feeling of hope, this feeling of joy, but we very quickly put it away and we never live into the fellowship that is now offered to us because of the work of Jesus Christ, right? So fellowship is possible, but it's not inevitable. Now because we know the great lengths that God went to to create a dwelling for us, that we can step into the possibility now of fellowship with Him. And we do that through the most boring and the mundane of means, things that we've been saying as a church for centuries now. Go and worship and be with the people of God. Listen to His Word and sing songs. And give your offerings to Him. Carve out time daily to be in the Word and to be in prayer and to commune with Him. Go and share the good news with those still living in darkness. Use your hands and your feet, your time and your energy and the, the gifts that God has given you to do acts of service and kindness to those in need, to the least of these. We've been given all these things and we've been saying them for years and years, but really I would hope that this Christmas might be a turning point. We would say that these aren't boring or mundane or just passe, but they've been talked about so much and so often because they're tried and true and precious gifts that each and every one of us has available to us to lean into the fellowship that is now possible with us. Dorothy Sayers um, wrote a series of novels about, uh, his name was Lord Peter Whimsey. Anybody remember those novels that he wrote? Anybody? Nobody. That's fine. All right, that's fine. I'll tell the story anyways. She wrote a series of novels about Lord Peter Whimsey, and he's this great detective. And during the course of these detective series, it sort of gained in popularity as she was writing them. Um, and this is reflections on people, you know, biographers of hers that write about her life. Um, during the midway, during the course of that series, a new character becomes introduced, a woman. And interestingly enough, this woman, in the course, she's first involved in the case, but as Lord Peter Whimsey gets to know her, um, he finds out that she was educated at Oxford. And so was Dorothy Sayers. That this woman is described as not being unattractive, but not being terribly attractive. And Dorothy always thought of herself as not being terribly attractive. The woman in the story began to write detective novels. Dorothy was in the midst of writing detective novels. What had happened is she was so enamored, and not in an arrogant, prideful way, she was so enamored with this character that she created, there's that part of her that fell in love with Sir, P Sir Peter Whimsey, and what she did was she actually then wrote herself into the story, and during the course of the time, she married Lord Peter Whimsey during the series. She wrote herself into the story, so that she could be known. Our God has done something even better. He did not write himself into the story to know and be known by us, to have fellowship with us. God fleshed himself into our story. Amen? He fleshed himself into our story so that he could have fellowship with us and us with him. This is the great length that God has gone to so that we can know and be known and be in a relationship of love and fellowship with 
him. Salvation is a gift. Fellowship is now possible. Joy now, joy and fellowship and the gift of salvation is now available to each and every one of us. Got to do a time check. Oh, I got time. I got time. I've had, I've had a, a difficult relationship with joy during the course of my life. When I was very young, my mother told me I was full of love and laughter and joy. I was the clown. I think that may have gone through the eyes of a mother loving her daughter. But during that time, she said I was the most joyful, happy kid. But during the course of time and events in my life, that joy, I think, as I reflect back on it, started to leak out. Life can be difficult. Friends can let you down. Pains can come. Trials can happen joy can seep away. I became very obsessed and very focused on not on joyfulness, but seriousness. I have to examine God and truth. I have to look at my calling. Why have I been so blessed in so many ways to have this family, to be raised in a Christian home, to have the opportunity for an education, to have doors open for, for me. I became very serious about my calling. I became very enamored with things like Micah 6, 8, a wonderful verse. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Yes, I must do justly. I must love mercy. I must force myself to walk humbly. There's irony supposed to be in, in, in all of that, by the way. Joy was sort of sapped from my life. And then I began to realize, as I was seeking to do ministry from this position, well, there's an old expression, you attract more flies with honey rather than vinegar, right? I think I had a pretty vinegar life, a pretty sour life, pretty dour life for a season. And I realized I had to re-experience, rediscover, like many others, and others have written whole stories about it, joy. The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy. The second fruit of the Spirit is joy. Joyfulness is a gift that God is offering to us by salvation through fellowship. We can now know and have and live into true joyfulness. If you are not experiencing the joy of Christmas, the joy of salvation, the joy of fellowship in your life, I will, I will make it very clear for you. I will make it abundantly clear for you. You will not be able to forget this. Pray for it. Sorry, again, an unwow moment in a message of how we live into these things offered to us. Pray for it. Pray for joy to come into your life as a fruit of the Spirit offered, available, given to you. If you are not experiencing joy daily, go to God and ask for it. Incidentally, if you're not experiencing peace, ask for it. If you're not experiencing self-control, ask for it. If you're not experiencing gentleness, whatever fruit you need, ask for it. True joy is offered to us, but so few of us have asked for it. I hope you are filled with joy. I believe now in my life I am a joyful person. I do feel in my life a joy and a peace that passes all understanding, a joyfulness over and above the situations and circumstances of life. True joy is available. Salvation is a gift. Fellowship is possible. Joy is available. And in the end, friend, love wins. Love wins in the end. We know this because of Christ.
Christmas. Love will win because the shadow of the cross hangs over that manger. Love will win because we know the process has been set in place. The ministry has begun. The humiliation of Jesus's birth, of humbling himself to be born of a woman, will lead to his humiliation and death on a cross, but will set the stage for the exaltation of his resurrection and the win of life and love of God available now for all of us. Ooh, I had a whole thing I was going to say about that, but I'm going to skip that because I want to lean into this for the end. Let me just make the transition. Follow along with me. Christmas vacation. I can't recommend it as a pastor from the stage, but, you know, Christmas vacation. Well, Christmas vacation has this ending, and I, I had this memory of how it went. <clears throat> so I googled Christmas vacation. I googled transcript. By the way, you can find transcripts of like every movie online by the now. So if you want to know a movie word for word, the, the transcripts are just there. So I went and I found the transcript for Christmas Vacation to see, to read, if what I remembered was true. And here's how Christmas Vacation ends. Look, Ruby Sue, sweetheart, it's Santa Claus. What? She thinks she sees Santa Claus in parentheses. Santa Claus! No, it's the Christmas star. And then here's Clark Griswold's speech. And that's all that matters tonight. Not bonuses or gifts or turkeys or trees. See, kids. Now your mind's going back to the movie, right? You're picturing the scene. See, kids. It means something different to everybody. And now I know what it means to me. That ain't the friggin' Christmas star. It's the light on the sewage treatment plant explosion. End of scene. It sounds so deep, right? It means something different to everyone, and now what I know what it means to me. The only thing is, he never says what it means to him. It sounds deep, it sounds reflective, it sounds insightful, but really it's nothing. It's nothingness. There's no substance to it. That's fine, it's still a funny movie. What John has done for us is he has eliminated the possibility that Christmas is without substance and that the meaning is left for us to make. No, friends, the gift of Christmas is that it has been handed, offered, given to us as a gift. There is no need for wondering, frustration, confusion, doubt, or despair anymore because the meaning of Christmas for us is that salvation has come and it means the end of religion. It means that it is now a gift by the grace of God. It means that fellowship with the God that we have longed to know from our very inception and beginning is now available to us. True joy in that relationship is available to us and love will when this is what Christmas means. Amen. Band, get on up here. They're going to get ready to take us out, and here's what I wanted to save the time for. I'm going to read a list of reflections, and they're going to start, what, what do you always call it? You always call it, tra what do you always call it? Vamping. Vamping. The band is going to vamp. Oh, I sound like a roadie now or a groupie. Or the band is going to start to vamp, and as they do when they get ready to take us in worship, this will just take a minute here. No, I take that back. This will take about four or five minutes. I'm going to read you some reflections on the difference between religion and relationship. Working for your salvation or receiving the gift of salvation 
And I'm going to do this in the context that I've talked about this before. This comes from uh, Tim Keller and a lot of his reflections, again, in Hidden Christmas and the meaning of Christmas. But what I've done is he had done, he talked about the difference between religion and the gospel or our relationship with God. But I'm just going to read through this list, and I'm going to replace gospel with Christmas. And so what you're going to hear is some reflections on religion means this, but Christmas means this. Does it make sense? Make sense? Religion means this, but Christmas means this. Religion is about me, but Christmas is about Jesus. Religion depends on what I do, but Christmas is about what Jesus has done. Religion sees Jesus as the means, but Christmas sees Jesus as the end. Religion has an uncertainty of standing before God, but Christmas means certainty is based upon Jesus. Religion ends in pride or despair, but Christmas ends with joy. Let's go a little bit deeper. Religion means I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But Christmas means I'm accepted, therefore I want to obey. Religion means motivation is based on fear and insecurity, but the Christmas tells us that our motivation can be based on the joy that we receive. Religion tells us that I obey in order to get things from God, but Christmas invites us to obey and delight in the gift that has already been given to us. Religion says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I'm angry with God or myself since I believe that anyone who is good enough deserves a comfortable life. But Christmas tells us that when circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle, but I know that my punishment fell on Jesus, and that while he may allow this for my training, he will exercise his love in the midst of my trial. Religion says that when I'm criticized, I'm furious and devastated. I must think of myself as a good person, and threats to that self-image must be destroyed at all cost. But Christmas tells us that when I'm criticized, I struggle, but my identity is not built on my record or my performance, but on God's love shown to me in Jesus Christ. Religion says that my prayer life consists largely of petition and only heats up when I'm in a time of need. My main purpose in prayer is to control my environment. But Christmas tells us that my prayer life should consist in generous stretches of praise and adoration. My main purpose is deeper fellowship with Him. Religion says my self-view swings between two poles. If and when I'm living up to my standards, I'm confident but then I'm prone to pride. And if and when I'm not living up to my standards, I'm insecure and inadequate. I'm a failure. But Christmas tells us that my self-view is in Christ. I am simultaneously sinful and yet accepted in Christ. I am so bad that he had to die for me, but I am so loved that he was glad to die for me. This leads me to deeper and deeper humility and confidence, neither pride nor fear. And one last one. Religion says, since I look to my own pedigree or performance for my spiritual acceptability, my heart manufactures idols. It may be my talents, my moral record, my personal discipline, my social status. Whatever it is, I have to have them 
so that they serve as my main hope, my main meaning, my happiness, my security, my significance, whatever I may say I believe about God. But Christmas says that I have many good things in my life, family, work, spiritual disciplines, the church, etc. But none of these good things are ultimate things to me. None of them are things I absolutely have to have, so there is no limit to how much anxiety, bitterness, or despondency they can inflict on me when they are threatened and lost. Religion is over, is ended, is finished in the gift of Christmas because Christmas is for us salvation in Jesus Christ. Fellowship with God is possible, joy is available, and love, we know, wins in that babe born on Christmas morning. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this meaning revealed in the story of Christmas. And I pray for my brothers and sisters now that maybe this meaning will land on us in a fresh way, in a new way, or even for the first time, that we may get it, that the light may shine on us and we may see your son whose birth we celebrate at Christmas and know that in his birth, salvation is now a gift offered to us. Fellowship is now available with a God we've always longed for. The joy that we want so desperately is available through you and that your love will win in the life of the resurrection freely given for us. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's worship.